Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out. I'm Billy Allen. I'm Niels Nielsen. And I'm John Mayer. And today we have a big time guest, probably the person whose ideas we've stolen from the most. He is the Director of Sport Development at USA Volleyball, and it is Mr. John Kessel. Thanks for joining us, John. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the chance to blab, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's worth saying that I, I spent a little bit of time on the USA Volleyball website looking up your bio, and I think I was on there for about 15 minutes, and I was only halfway through. <laughs> I'm lucky because I get paid to do what I love, and that's probably what you guys are doing as well. And, you know, when you get to do that, that's pretty lucky place to be in. That is very cool. We uh, we love doing this, but we don't get paid, so we got to figure out how to how to make some money someday. So our topic today with John is feedback, and more specifically, internal versus external feedback. So this is something I think for Billy Nils and I is something we haven't covered, and is sort of a, a newer idea, especially the internal and external. John, can you just start out kind of defining what internal feedback means, and then maybe move on to external. There's two ways to look at it, intrinsic and extrinsic. So the feedback that you give yourself, obviously, is intrinsic feedback. And extrinsic feedback comes from the coach, where the coach is telling you what to do or guiding your discovery. Those are the two areas of true feedback that you can get from a coach. And I think it's very important for coaches to understand that when you tell somebody what to do, that is the worst remembered form of learning you know coaches are all about learning and john wynn's great book you haven't taught them if they haven't learned is saying to coaches something about what we didn't study long enough and we're, we now study better but that's retention so the best remembered something is when you figure it out yourself however you figure it out doesn't matter it's that you problem solve the whole thing by yourself and the best example of that that i use often is learning how to ride a bike I doubt that any one of you listening had a coach coaching you how to ride the bike. Your parents love you, but they didn't hire a coach. They love you, but they didn't make you do drills and weave through cones. They love you. They now put on a helmet back when I grew up. They didn't even do that. They put you on the bike and they picked you up when you fell. And they might say something wise like stay on the bike. <laughs> but in the end, learning to ride a bike is totally intrinsically learned. And it might be four or five years that you've ridden a bike and you get back on the bike and you ride the bike because it's so well retained. The worst retained is when somebody tells you what to do. And that's what I was as a young coach. I was sort of the always telling and the answer coach. The almost as good as intrinsic learning and intrinsic feedback to yourself, but from me giving the feedback, is when I guide your discovery through what we often call Socratic questioning, helping you discover the answer. But, you know, using the wisdom that I have as a coach from years of playing or experience and watching and getting you to figure it out yourself. That's when it's retained almost as well as if you figured it out yourself. And hand in glove in that is the creativity that a player having figured it out themselves has. So specific to this attention book called Attention in Motor Learning by uh, Dr. Gabriel Wolf, which is highly recommended. I'll have a blog coming out on this tomorrow. You guys are kind of first to hear about it. She has done a lot of research herself and pulls in a lot of other research into showing how when I talk about something internally, when my focus is internal, leg, arm, back, breathing, feet, that the learning is retained less than when I focus on things that are outside my body. And that external focus is what we're kind of here to talk about. And my blog is going to, you know, talk about the examples that I've had to change from put your right foot forward to be open to your team. In both setters' cases, we know that a good setter tends to stand in a stable, staggered stance and have their right foot leading so that they make the sets off the net as a positive error and that they're open to their teammates. But I'm no longer saying put your right foot forward. I'm telling them to get in a position open to your teammates or questioning them saying, 
how can you stand so that the ball tends to go off the net if you make an error rather than over the net? How can you stand and, and let them figure it out by talking about things that are external? Because I'm talking about the ball flight, not the actual stance of their right or left foot. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think it's humbling and pretty impressive that after all your years of coaching, you're still coming up with new things and like, oh, I had to change how I give this kind of feedback and you're still learning. That's it's pretty impressive. And then why do you think it is so hard for us to get feedback and feel what our body's doing? Well, they're not sure. They've Dr. Gabriel Wolf and some of the people in the brain rules world and, and the research of the mind, you know, they're one thing that always drives my shorts is when somebody says muscle memory. <laughs> There's no such thing as muscle memories. Your muscles don't have little brains. Everything is how do you store this more effectively and efficiently in your brain and because of the way the brain is more of a serial thing not a parallel processor even though it's really fast when you pay attention to things that are internal it makes it process in your brain longer than if you let the processing not be focused on in your brain but by determining the external actions of the things that are happening like the ball flight one of the more amazing examples to me the research on runners whose uh, VO2 use, oxygen uptake, was highest when they were told to focus on their breathing. It got less oxygen use, got more efficient in running, when they were told to think about their legs. But that's still internal attention. Your legs are part of your body. When they were told to just look down the road and get there as fast as possible, that's when the least amount of oxygen consumption was happening. They became more efficient runners, just naturally. And it wasn't just one person, you know, they've done quite a few studies. I thought another one that I mentioned in my blog is about agility, where they are told to plant their feet harder and cut around the cones quickly and feedback like that from the coach advising them on how to get around the cones quickly on the agility run. They were always slower and they remembered the race speed less than the athlete who was told to go around the cones as fast as possible. Again, you're saying there's the external thing. You figure out within your own brain and body how to get around that cone as fast as possible. I don't tell you to worry about your internal side. I want you to come up with an internal solution without thinking about it by focusing on the external. That's where your attention is. And that's what Dr. Wolf and the other research is so impactful, I think, for many sports. Uh, I mean, she was doing this in skiing, in swimming, in jumping higher, which is volleyball, of course, and in golf and in tennis. I mean, it, it's amazing. It's not just, and it wasn't the five-year-old who was told to jump and put their finger as high as possible jump less than the ones that were told or when they were retold even to jump and get as high as they can on the board but not mention any body parts you know not your finger or not touch so her book came out in 2012 i've been working on it for a while and she did some really good stuff at the nike spark conference in 2013 and i finally decided that i i do yeah i have to change how i'm going to give feedback and i'm kind of sharing my process with it in that one blog this is fantastic i've toyed with this a little bit it sounds like you have a lot more uh science behind what's going on but the problem that i face especially with the upper school level of players is the idea of judgment of the performed skill so when I have the players focus on the result of the ball, they're bringing so much judgment when something goes wrong, the frustration factor is so high so quickly that it wasn't perfect, that it almost hinders the process of, of them learning. And if I can get them to focus on something like a body part, which now I'm thinking of how much I do this, I have them focus on body parts and it's making me rethink so much. But as I do that, it seems to at least get them away from the judgment of the result. Is there a way or is there something that is different in these studies or in the feedback that you've found that can get rid of that? Or how do you deal with that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great observation. And I, and I hear where you're coming from. And I, I don't think I'm saying that it 
no point in time am I ever going to mention a body part again, because I know I'm going to have to. I know that what I'm going to be doing is, while I might mention it for one point, I'm going to be going as fast as I can back to any form of external focus or a metaphor. Mm. The metaphor, for example, in setting that I'm using in the blog, I used to say set a ball higher because it's true. You need to move your arms faster because you're supposed to. When people don't set the ball high enough, it's usually because they haven't moved their arms or their hands or the whole unit as fast as possible. Because metaphors take you outside of your body, I'm now saying fly like Superman, shoot a cannonball out the tube as fast as you can, because now I'm telling them a cannonball instead of a volleyball, and I'm making them move their arms faster on this cannonball. That's And the cannon, of course, stops them from swanning, mm. because a lot of kids will set and swan really bad when they're first beginning. And you want to, you know, get all your force into the flight of the ball when you're young and you need those body parts. John, I had a question on the internal focus and the external focus. Even if the learner isn't a beginner, let's say they're a moderate to even advanced player, but the skill they're learning is a new skill. Does that change the way we get feedback or is this across the board? It doesn't matter on the level of the learner. You know, it, because of the research that she was doing with younger kids and it not making a difference, what I'm going to be doing when I go in the gym is I am going to limit or almost eliminate reference to internal body parts and creatively come up with solutions to say the same thing in an external way that they can find the answer. Do younger kids need to know body parts? Perhaps. But if you go on YouTube and you watch the amazing three-year-old dancers and I just watched a thing with Stephen Curry and a kid that mimicked him identically. And the kid may have been, gosh, nine or something. <laughs> and, you know, the dribble through the legs, the backhanded layup and stuff that is phenomenal. There was no coaching going on there. There was just him watching and doing it on his own without any coaching going on. That's because words have little meaning to beginners in motor skill learning and showing is always better than telling with a beginner i have a whole set of clips that i could send you guys if you want that make me laugh where parents teaching their kids something their parent says something and the kid does something totally opposite or wrong <laughs> it's the guy's riding the bike towards this problem and the dad goes stop and turn around stop and turn around and so the kid stops and gets off the bike and then turns around say put your eye in the ball and the kid literally goes up to the t-ball kid puts his eye right on the ball and the dad says again no no put your eye in the ball and the kid just puts his eye right on the ball i, I mean <laughs> words have little meaning to beginners and so the more we demo with attention to maybe one or two cues you know i'll give you a good example i worked with the special olympians at the world games many years back and they came out onto this field to do volleyball and sports that were for the Special Olympians. And they couldn't do the sport that they came from around the world. There were 126 countries that came to the World Championships or the World Games. It was Brian Ivey and I, and we had about 20 kids. And we lowered the net because a lot of Down syndrome kids that many Special Olympians are, aren't very tall. So we lowered the net down. And they'd never played volleyball. Half of them didn't speak English. So none of the words we would say as cue words are going to work with these Special Olympians that never played volleyball. So instead, Brian Ivey, I stood at the net as his setter. I threw him the ball and he said Superman. That was the only word he said, but then he, you know, fully extended. And then I said Superman and I fully extended. And then Brian went up and smashed the ball. We demoed it three times and then we got into the lines of about five or six kids and said, all right, we're ready. And uh, the kids, you know, you kind of said hands up like this. You didn't talk because probably half of them didn't speak English. So they did this and you remembered this and they showed you that. So we threw the ball in and they slapped the ball up to me and I set them and they jumped and hit. So in five minutes, they were past setting and hitting, even though they'd never played volleyball and they were special Olympians. Now, would I say the technique was perfect? 
No. Did they extend like Superman? Yeah, pretty good actually at that. They you know, they probably are very good observers because of their situation and in order to survive in life, whatever country they're from. Now, the second part of the story from a grow the game point of view or, or my world of sport development is in about 10 minutes, we're hearing other sports because there were 12 sports that they could do basketball, putting for golf, bowling. They were fishing even. <laughs> so they had all these choices that they could do, but they just couldn't do the sport that they came to compete in. All of a sudden we looked around and we had like 75 people and all the basketball guys are screaming, we're not done yet. Get back here. Get back here. And the Special Olympians, they're so pure of mind. You know, they were just putting down the basketball and going over to do what? They wanted to come over and spike with us because what we were doing was way more fun than standing in line over there with whatever sport that they were doing. Of course, we're not done yet. It meant nothing to about half the group because they didn't even speak English. It's pretty impressive that you got them past that hitting in five minutes where normally in a practice in that situation, you might be halfway through an explanation of setting in five minutes. Yeah, that's a great observation. And, you know, in my roots in the 70s, when I first started learning about motor skills, science and stuff, before that, I talked a lot. You know, there was the more you know, the more you try and tell them, not knowing it's going to be the more you're going to confuse them. And we saw that in the 70s where if you've ever been to a volleyball camp, you might still suffer through some of this, but we're going to explain the 6-2 rotation and we show all six rotations and we do all this stuff for 45 minutes. And then we go back to the courts. The kids couldn't remember any of that. Of course not. Yeah. But we did it because we were teaching the way we were taught. We have to explain the 6-2. Now we just get out and play and start fixing it you know, as they get in the wrong place. And far less standing around. That is a huge pet peeve of mine is how do we get our coaches to stop kids from standing in line? And because you're not learning by watching and people say, oh, no, you learn a lot by watching. Well, I'm going to say, yeah, you learn a little bit. But both my son, who's now playing professionally over in Switzerland, and my daughter learned to drive not that many years ago. And they sat in that car for 16 years watching me drive. Oh, yeah, they did. Did they know how to drive? Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't know how to drive until they got behind the wheel and started driving. And my insurance rate showed it. Some of the examples or maybe some of the pushback that some of our listeners might have is that mm -hmm. the examples that you have of riding a bike, of driving a car and stuff, these are, these are fairly simplistic skills that one can pick up and learn. When it comes to a higher skilled or a more complicated skill, is that the reason that coaches jump in there and start coaching so much? Or what do you attribute yeah, so much feedback question. to yeah, yeah. coaches? I love it. There's two big things that we're talking about in a motor learning science side. Most of basketball, all of bike riding, essentially, and all of driving, not all, but most of it, is what we would call a closed motor program. And the only closed motor program in our sport is serving. Everything else is an open motor program where the most important skill becomes the reading and the anticipation and the judgment of what's happening on the other side of the net or from a passer to the setter or from the setter to the hitter. And the second part of that open versus close that is so frustrating, I don't have a solution for it yet other than a ball and a string or a balloon, and that is the time constraints. As you move up the ladder, to the higher beach people you guys are working with in many other areas. What separates the wheat from the shaft there is their ability to read as the ball comes faster and faster at a steeper angle from taller and better skilled players. And you start to see kids who can't do that reading well enough. Fascinating book called Why Michael Couldn't Hit, probably 20 years old, but it explains why the amazing Michael Jordan as an athlete, um, yeah, he did okay in golfing, you know, he wasn't, but he couldn't be pro at it. Or he wouldn't make any money at it. When he went to baseball, he couldn't hit. Well, that's because he didn't get, when he was young, these fast flying objects that he had to read and the myelin and his brain development and pathways weren't strong enough. Over time, if he kept playing, he would get better probably. But even though he was a good athlete, since things are specifically learned, he wasn't that good at baseball a fast flying object that comes in at, you know where you're reading 
probably a major league baseball guy's got to make his determination on whether to swing or not. Probably when the ball's what eight feet out of the hands of the pitcher, and they got to decide to swing, or else they're not going to be able to do it. You know. So when coaches who have played, and I've had a lot of dear friends that are Olympians like Karch and like Long Ping, who make the move to being not a player anymore but a coach, they've developed some great reading skills. And I can share with you a ecological psychology article showing that referees are sometimes better readers than coaches. Why that is, I think it's because a coach goes to tournaments and doesn't have to be on in learning and reading, but for just when their team is playing. But a referee might do eight to 10 matches in a day, and they're having to read while it's on a different angle, read the what's happening and make a decision instantaneously on was that a double hit or was that a throw or whatever. So this skill of reading that I keep harping about, sometimes called perception action coupling, I don't think coaches realize how important the game is to learning to read well. I'll use beach as an example, because you guys are good at beach, all right? So the ball gets received. As soon as you see that ball fly about three or four feet, your team, the opposing team, is already making a decision whether I need to back off or stay blocking. And in the six-man game with triple blocks and six players on one side, it's even more important for the outside hitter to know whether or not things are going to be possible based on the pass, which then determines whether the middle hitter is going to hold the middle blocker for a little bit longer or not. And all these things result in my decision is as an outside hitter, I'm going to go hit whether there's a hole or not, because I haven't seen the hole form yet. I'm making my decision before I hit, you know, the, before I actually strike the ball, my decision had to be made. So when coaches don't bring that true reality of the game into their concepts and the training, we call it they're practicing for practice, but they're not practicing for performance. And going way back to your question about why you go back to body parts when they're frustrated about the outcome of the ball being hit out, I think there's a couple other things that I might be doing that are still external focused. The first one is to check for understanding. And, and that's important because what you and your wisdom as an outsider coach not involved in the play can see, they may have a completely different thinking as to what actually happened. And we call that either a no yes or a yes no situation where when something is done right, and the hitter or the athlete says, yeah, that was right, that's good. When something was done wrong and you go no and the athlete goes no, that's good. Where we have to work harder as coaches in helping guide their discovery is whether I saw that as right, but they actually thought it was wrong or vice versa. I saw it as wrong and they're going, yeah, that was perfect. And you're going, oh, that wasn't even close to perfect. You know, <laughs> We're not on the same page. That's where the real coaching, where the rubber meets the road, where you start to question and guide and listen and go, why did you think that that was good? And, and all that could be done with external focus rather than body parts is what I'm thinking. I think we, for sure, on this show, we agree that reading is the most important skill. At least we've argued about it, but I think we're almost on the same page as that. It's still uh, hotly debated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're getting closer. It's behind jumping, John. Okay, right behind jumping. And, and height. <laughs> And height is more important. <laughs> so then just kind of getting back to the feedback and the, the external focus, can you give us any examples of how a coach would help guide someone there towards reading better? You know, that's a great question too. I'll give you the old John and the new John, and I'm going to use your height as part of it. Because whether you're tall or not, all good hitters hit at full extension. So as a young coach, I saw players hit the ball, I'm going to just say, down by their ear. You know, their hand was down here somewhere. And I would say the following five comments. Reach, extend, get your elbow up. The negative John in the early 70s said, don't drop your elbow. 
And finally, I probably would say something like, get on top of the ball or something like that. And that is probably being said in almost every gym around the United States still to this day. But none of them are coming up with the reason and the right solution as to why the ball is being hit here. So rather than tell them extrinsically, extrinsic learning and extrinsic feedback, John, reach. <laughs> rather than do that, I'm saying something like, okay, here's the ball. We want to hit it at full extension, but I might even, before I even go there, check for understanding and say, all right, and I do this a lot with young kids, show me without the ball what you should look like when you hit or pass or set or anything. Always just check for understanding. Get rid of the ball, which puts everything in the timing mode and say, without the ball, show me what the technique is. And when that player shows full extension without the ball, even though they hit the last two down by their head, I now know that they know the technique. They just are misjudging or mistiming the ball. That's my wisdom. It's saying that's what's going on. So I need to guide them to figure out how to get the ball at a higher, earlier contact point. So then you start to question and guide their discovery. Okay. The ball's down here. We want to hit the ball up there. Do you want to be earlier or later? What would happen if you were later? Would the ball be higher or lower? I'm not giving the answer. I'm giving them a question. And they'll process and they'll go, oh, if I went later, it would be even lower. Right. So what does your approach need to probably do? Well, if I went earlier, well, then if you went earlier, where would the ball be? Oh, it'd be higher. Yeah. Now, there might be another solution. Did you swing as fast as you could on that one? Well, no, I, I didn't. So what if you swung sooner or faster? Where will the ball be? Same place? No, think about it. Where will the ball be? If you go sooner with your swing, will the ball be same place, higher or lower? Oh, it'll be higher. Yeah. So go show me that, which means I'm asking them to now go sooner and faster on the next identical or similar set. Does that help? Yeah. And then I was thinking this might be a, uh, an internal focus. Like, would you ever tell the athlete, well, your eyes need to go to the passer so you can see the timing of the pass so you know when to start your approach? I know when we talk about eyes, that becomes that internal focus, which we're going against. Yeah. So, but I also think eyes are so important for reading. I wonder what you think about that. I used to say eyes a lot as a young coach. I can't remember the last time I've said eyes. I will direct their attention to reading the passer's platform, which is very external, and not telling them that their eyes should look at the passer. Mm -hmm. And, okay, here's a great example for serve receiving. Maybe you've never done this. I, I, David Cordes came up with this idea a while ago, and, I've been doing it in some camps, but he reminded me of it, and I love it. He's a, a great Starlings coach out of Ridgecrest up uh, near Bakersfield. If I had one of you, like now, stand right in front of John, and John serving, okay? What's going to happen if I put you just a yard in front of John serving, and he swings and hits the ball? I am betting donuts of dollars. You could accurately predict five out of six places the ball is going, even though all you saw was his arm motion and the ball fly over your head because you're just a meter in front of him. With that little information, you're going to be going, that went to six, that went to three, that went to two. So what I see is most players learn to partner pass in front of the net, which means they start to reinforce seeing balls and thinking about and worrying about balls at the net rather than the great serve receivers do what a lot of coaches are doing lately now is called occlusion. Jamie's doing it with the national team, so Tom Blackman mentioned it to you. We see Ronaldo do it on a really great video on soccer, where in Australia they put the glasses on the athletes, the coach controls it, the player goes to serve, strikes the ball, the coach presses a button, the glasses go black, and you got to serve receive the ball. And you don't see any more of the ball flight or anything. You just saw what really matters, which is reading 
out there on the server's toss and their body position and their arm speed and their contact, all that stuff that happens if you stood a yard in front of them and they never could see the rest of the ball flight, you know where it's going. That reading is incredibly important. You know, the best way to get it, play beach doubles. <laughs> Just play as much doubles as you can. You'll get much better at servicing, I promise. Yeah. Do you know if it's something like that? that goggles thing that you, you said from Australia, do you know if that's effective? That actually helps reading? Yeah, it does. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ask Tom. I mean, there, Jamie's got some stuff that he's been doing, but basically it's, it's making the athlete aware of all the information that's happening in that first half a second of ball flight, looking through the net in the case of serve receiving, but also for the blockers, you know, they go, here's the setter and they stop. And then the, where'd the ball go? And they're doing yeah. that on video in order to be better readers of the game when they actually go play. It almost sounds like a, a mean trick you'd play. I could just imagine uh, the first time doing it, just getting lit up in the face by a, a Clay Stanley jump serve or something. But <laughs> but uh, I, I imagine after time that it's got to help. And it's, it it's really cool. I'd, I'd love to see it. Yeah. Just do the one I said, which doesn't require any occlusion. Now, you, you got to trust that I'm not going to blast you in the face from a meter away serving, that I'm going to serve over the net and not into your face. But it's remarkable how even younger kids, when they're made aware of how much information the server's already giving them by standing there and watching the server and then saying six, and then they turn around and, you know, they see the ball either go to six or you tell them, yeah, that was six or no, it went to four. Oh, that one went to four. Okay. And you're teaching them to look through the net and, and get on the server early rather than when the ball starts to come over the net. That's way too late. Yeah, I like that a lot. At first I was thinking, well, then you're missing out on a serve receive rep, but you could probably put someone else back there and have them pass it. And let Absolutely. You know if it was good. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is just yeah. more of a, you know, maybe you're doing this five or six times right. to make them go, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And then you put them back over there and say, now keep watching through the net and Give yourself that time that maybe you haven't been giving yourself. Right, right. That's, that's a good idea. I'm going to try it myself. Another question I had was, can you kind of go into like the length of feedback and the timing, like how important that is when you're giving it? Yeah, the length of feedback, the shorter, the better. Long-winded feedback can only really be processed by the elite athletes. And when they're really young, words have, as I said earlier, little meaning of beginner. So as you heard me with the younger Special Olympians, the only keyword was Superman. And we didn't say anything about hitting. We just had Brian hit a few. And then they ran and jumped and did their best as they could. As they, but they all jumped to hit because Brian jumped and hit when he demoed. So the blog I mentioned, Bill Neville came up with this term many years ago called 4 by 4 where each cue, there's four cues maximum, and each cue should only have about four words or less in its cue. So serving would be, you know, ready position, place the ball, rigid contact, or cement hand, or rock hand, and um, swing fast, or open the door and slam the door, and, you know, variations on a theme. And you don't give them all four at once because, at least in the beginner, they can't process it. When they get better, you're looking for the cue that they need to focus on the most. And then, in part, go back to you and I saying, did I do it that time? With strong hand, it's kind of fascinating. I've got a round thing here. I'll go, watch my hand when I serve. Does it hit my fingers? Is my wrist giving? And they go, no. And I say, now go do that on the ball and show me. And they'll go like this. And their hand will wrap around the ball. I go, no, watch my hand again. That's just checking for understanding. Ah, and then finally they'll go, and you go, okay, go do that right now. And they'll go back and they'll only focus on that, this rigid concrete contact or whatever. And they'll go back and they'll hit it and the ball will rocket off their hand maybe for the first time because up until then they've wrapped their hands around, their fingers are sucking up all the power and their wrist is given and all this other stuff. The ball rockets out of bounds and they just go, oh my God. Oh my God, you know, because they're stunned that, that it worked that fast. That feedback is because I see the four things that I'm worried about, but with my experience, I can focus on the most important part. And then once they get that, I go to another queue and I go to another queue and 
then we start creating new cues and variations on a theme. How often? Uh, boy, you got to give them four to five trials before you start to interfere with the same feedback or even a little bit different feedback. Most coaches sit there and just blab, 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 blab. And they, they need the break. It's called summary feedback. I'll use this term. Summary feedback is based on this. When I see five and four right and one is wrong, I need to talk about the four right and not the one wrong. When I see five and three of them aren't, aren't so good and two of them are okay, then I can talk about fixing the wrong. The kids know summary feedback because in camps, I'll come up to a kid after a coach has told them something and they'll mutter in their breath, yeah, I just did 10 perfectly. Where was the coach? Nowhere. But I dork one, and there he is. And then he's gone. And they're saying the coach doesn't know how to give me good summary feedback. The coach is only catching me when I do it wrong. And that's not good feedback unless it's, you know, four out of the five errors. Then you do need to talk about the wrong. But otherwise, you need to talk about what they're doing well and not the one wrong. I hope that helps. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think it's uh, that to me is one of those things that the players have to participate in too, is almost summary learning where mm -hmm. I'll give them feedback or we'll be working on something, they perform it and it doesn't work immediately on the first try. And they look at me like, oh, well, I, I did it and it didn't work. I'm not doing this again. And it's mm -hmm. like, wait, try it again and keep going. It's it's Okay, so I'm going to give you two secrets. Yes, or, please. Yeah. The first secret. Mm, sorry, that's all the time we have this week. To hear part two with John Kessel, tune in next week. And to get every episode as soon as it comes out, you can subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please write us a review. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I'm going to give you two secrets. Yes, or, please. The first secret. I've heard it now twice. Stop mm -hmm. saying try. Oh, okay. When you tell a kid try in your extrinsic learning and external feedback, you're giving them an ex excuse to not do it. Yoda knew it. <laughs> Let's say about this blab. You asked me to do the blab, and I say, yeah, I'll try and do it. What am I really telling you? Not going to happen. I, I'm not going to do it. No, I don't have time. It's totally different than when I say, yeah, I can do it. What day? Now, how does that apply to coaching a kid that is doing something never done before and after the first error wants to blab about it, you know? Well, there, with a beginner and a new skill, you set the goal for one out of 10. Because I'm not going to ask you to do something you've never done before. I don't expect you to do it perfectly the first time or even the fifth time. So let's shoot right now as you work on this new shot for one out of 10. And boom, they do two out of 10. You go, oh, okay. You're better than I thought. We need to work now. We're going to do 10 more. Let's see if you can do three out of 10. And that gives them the space to do seven errors and still be working on what the goal is, which is three out of 10. Not try to do it. You're going to do it. And I'm going to start with one out of 20 if that's a hard skill or something, you know. But I don't know. This is pretty challenging. I, I don't know if you can do it yet. So let's go for one out of 20 and see what we can do. Let's do 20 now. And we go out and do the 20 in, you know, game situation or reality situation and Oh my gosh, you just did four out of 10 or four out of 20. That's, you're really getting this. And so instead of them worrying about the 16 they screwed up on, they're focusing on the four they did right. I believe you're answering it now, but a listener question, the whole idea of not using try, how does that work with the growth mindset where we're supposed to seek out challenges we can't do? And I guess you're saying mm -hmm. break it down, not expect perfection 10 out of 10, but maybe a smaller number. Absolutely. Um, my blog actually mentions three pretty important words to get rid of in coaching and feedback. But is one of them. You know, you guys, you have a great website, but what's coming? I'm going to slam it in some way, you know? It's totally different when I say you have a great website and because when you say but, whatever happened before, the door slams on. The athlete can't hear whatever you were saying that that you like because you're about ready to clearly tell them that something's wrong. But when you say the word and, they can still hear what it is that you liked. Try. And the third, which I don't have time to cover here other than to say, 
every time the word don't comes out of your mouth, grab it, push it back in and say what you want them to do because you can't teach a negative. You know, your brain isn't wired that way. That's the whole classic don't think about pink elephants. So don't try and but are the words that we've got to get rid of and change and make ourselves be more effective teachers and get more learning in the same amount of time. I like it. I won't be trying to beat Phil Dellhauser anymore. I'll just do it. <laughs> and I, you know what? If I film you, I bet you could do it one out of 20 times. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe 100. Uh, well, so actually that that's uh, an interesting segue into the idea of visual feedback. So when we're giving our players visual feedback, we're filming them and they're coming and looking at it, does the external or intrinsic feedback change at all or is it still the same principles? It's still the same principles. It's best when you get them to tell you what they're seeing. And in that spirit, I think that you've got to coach. And and this is, I don't think it's sexist. I I have a son and I have a daughter. Uh, My son will do nine things wrong and one right, you know, and all he'll talk about is the one right. My daughter will do nine things right and one wrong. And all she'll talk to me about is the one wrong. So when I'm videotaping young kids, girls, I'm going to be waiting to stop and watch the video till when they did it right. Absolutely for sure. I'm not even showing the four wrong. I'm just going to go, oh, my God, I just captured it. Come on over here. Susie, tell me what's going on here. Oh, I probably did it when I do my feet right. No, look at your feet are perfect. Oh, I didn't uh, I didn't set the ball high enough. No, look at the ball went plenty high enough. It was great. And, this is a beautiful set. Watch it again. And they sit there and they watch it. With guys, you can show them doing it wrong 10 times and they're going to say, that's not me. You know, that's somebody else in my beach trunks, you know. What you need to do with guys remains the same thing as catching them doing it right. But they, we tend to be more attentive to when we do it right and focus on that. And the gals tend to be concerned about letting their teammates down and they don't want to make mistakes in front of their peers. Whereas guys, we don't worry about it as much. So I, I give visual feedback with the video in two different ways. Now, should it be as immediate as possible? Yeah. Your feedback should be fairly soon. As my kids went through school, I was fascinated to see that what I went through with testing where I'd turn a test in and get the answer on Friday, my kids were getting the test results, you know, almost as soon as they put the piece of paper down, the, the teacher was grading it. That's because the feedback should be as soon as possible. But does it ha- have to always be immediate? No, I don't think so. But is immediate good in a lot of situations? Absolutely it is. So what I really love is this, and I kind of mentioned it again in that this new vlog coming out tomorrow, that Using Canovia or Dartfish and some of the other commercial products, Canovia is open source and free. You can take your laptop or take your uh, camera and your, you know, your little video cam for your desktop and videotape and put it through the projector up onto the wall of your gym and project it at 55 or 75 inches. And they can see themselves do it by you putting the action on the court on a delay of 10 seconds and everybody knows in the gym that that action up on the wall is going to be happening 10 seconds after and so anytime in a in a training or a competition or a scrimmage even i can walk over and look and see myself and then go back into the gym and back in the competition or whatever technology prices to get this and 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 if, if you're People haven't heard about it. It's the same things available both for the iPhone and for the iPad. It's called BAM Video Delay, which stands for bust a move, because dancers used it first to do a move and then go see if they did it really precisely. And and you can put your finger on the screen and it'll delay a certain amount of time, 20 seconds. The beauty of BAM Video Delay over Canovia, while it pops up only on your iPad, unless you project your iPad, because you can do that too, of course is that it puts up four screens. So you can put five, 10, 12, and 20 second delay 
and that same thing that happens appears on the screen four different times well there's a lot of great visual information going on and then after they watch it you turn to them as the coach and you say a question so what should you do to fix that <laughs> or why is that so beautiful you know what was so wonderful about that the technology is exciting because i, I feel like i'll i'll say something to a player five times like whatever the key is you know um, the ball in those angles for example they'll have struggled doing it struggle doing it and then a minute later i'll film it they'll come over and see it and they'll go oh now, now i get it and so I feel like my, my feedback doesn't get through until they really they see themselves. Once they see themselves, it's like, oh, I, I get what I was doing, right or wrong or, or whatever. So yeah. I feel like yeah. as, a, as a coach, the, <laughs> I don't know, technology is ahead of us. I think it's, it's more <laughs> valuable than we are right now, at least more valuable than I am. But think about it, because you guys are beach guys, and uh, you know, at least a couple of you are, right? How many beach coaches were there before the 96 Olympics? Zero. Zero. And we had some phenomenal players from Selznick to Fishburn to Sturm, phenomenal beach players who never had a coach because the game caught the game. And their teammate yelled at them and said, you got to do this or whatever. And, you know, they learned, as did the woman, through playing. Again, Eileen Clancy, Kathy Gregory, never had a coach. Just learn by playing. Can coaches help? Yeah because your wisdom can guide your discovery. And what I think we're missing on the California beach that used to be there more was when the 40-year-old mentor would take aside the 15-year-old kid to try and win a, a single A tournament or whatever and guide and mentor this younger player who by playing against people who were playing faster than a 15-year-old, they got way better, way faster. I, I, one of my personal frustrations is that by not playing against better players, but by simply playing against other 13-year-olds, other 15-year-olds in your age group, you don't get the high speed that makes you a better player, even though you lose more matches. And so you go back to Karch and Misty, you know, their upbringing was losing on the beach when their age was in single digits, playing with their dad. They lost, but they saw fast adult speed balls they laid down myelin when they were young that helped them be better players when they're older. Like Nils and I grew up playing together. I always attributed like, oh, we started early. But yeah, a lot of it probably had to do with we both, kind of like you and your son, we both played with our parents a lot. And yeah, just parents or playing adult, against, adult, playing against, against adults. adults. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great you can give your child to play with them or take them and not be worried about the outcome, but be worried about the fact that they're learning to play against adults and the outcome may not be good but the process that's laying down in their brain making them better athletes volleyball specific athletes is, is wonderful it got me thinking about and maybe you could speak about the importance of motivational feedback or maybe the lack of importance i know i heard i've heard Karch talk about his dad yelling rise and think and and that would i don't know push him to play better but i, I picture coaches uh, motivating me to to go harder or to push beyond what I can do. What do, you, what do you think about that sort of feedback? You know, I, if you go to the website, you'll see thousands of quotes. <laughs> and that's a form of that motivational feedback. And we have posters that you can put up on the wall so that when they're kind of standing around or they're waiting to get on the court, they can be learning by reading on the wall and things like that. That form of feedback is strongly rooted in trust and i think if you ask tom what has happened in the men and the women's gym especially on the women's side there's a tremendous amount of trust and i haven't seen the women's team be so family oriented since 1980. the 80 team that qualified for the olympics but got boycotted out you know their theme song was we are family by sly and the family stone and they really did trust each other. And when you get that kind of trust, then there's some pretty interesting motivation um, that comes from your teammates and as well as yourself. But it's, I trust that you're motivated, if that makes sense. And so now my job is to give you proof and belief of even more trust to make you a you know, stronger, better player. 
You talked about setting fly like Superman, fire it out of a cannon, some metaphors that you've used mm -hmm. for other skills. Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe you could go through a couple that you've used for each skill, setting, serving, passing, and hitting. And are these mostly directed to young kids or can we like as college coaches still be using Superman and those kind of fun cues? I think that's a level of the kind of trust you might have with your athletes and the, the kind of gym. I mean, I'm thinking of what Karch talks about in his gym. Uh, I don't know if you caught the women's match when they qualified against Dominican, but uh, Sunday and or, you know, Barney, I think, was talking about how second most important thing in the gym at the national team level is fun, which is pretty cool to hear. And yet it exists because at that level, training can be a grind. Uh, especially when you're playing professionally and then haven't come back to the national team. So for me, I think some of the words I'm going to say are not necessarily college level, but I would simply suggest to you to change simply, not change, but simply to ask them to give you their keyword for that which you're seeking. So it doesn't have to be superhero or supergirl. And it doesn't have to be out of canon. But when you say, this is what you're doing, and of course, that's a negative, a swan. And what I'm looking for is this. I think we're looking for this, right? This is what we want to look like. Did we just go watch uh, Alicia Glass? Did she just do that? Okay, so show me that you can do it without the ball. Okay, now you put the onus on the athlete. What's your cue for that move right there? And she says, the glass because she saw it by watching Alicia, you know, do something or you go, okay, it's the glass or it's the, it's the bird or it's the, uh, the mica. John, That's can I, can I yeah. ask you, and let's go a hypothetical. So say the player, you ask them to do something, uh, give them their cue for what the skill is being performed. What if they go into a body part cue? They say, I'm trying to make sure my wrists do this and my elbows feel like that. What well, can you then do? My first statement to them would be, well, if you're trying to do it, it means you're giving yourself an excuse to not do it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> that would be my, my first thought. This one, that's going to be that's gonna be a tough. I'm circling that one in my notes here. That's going to be a tough one for me. But after, after that, you bring up a, a little deeper question. Do my young kids, 13s and 14s, do they get motor learning science education? Yes. So are they aware of the need to not use a body part? Yes. And so when they say a body part, I say, okay, so that's internal. Can you give me an extrinsic version? And then they have to come up with an extrinsic one. Hmm. They're bright. They're pretty creative. In my fun world, you know, I'm going to, Dave Richards, Dave and Lori Richards had a great family and one of them, Kristen married Ty Hildebrand and, you know, has been on the national team captain and great, great, great player, great human being as well. Her dad, Dave, when we talked about not swinging your arms, you know, for some reason, kids, okay, I'll go back to the 75. Here's the don't, a don't story that I don't, <laughs> I rarely tell. I had F troop. I had the lowest level kids that this one camp, every single one of them, as they passed, before the ball got there, they went like this. And after they passed, they went like that. And for listeners, that's bending your elbows. Bending your elbows. Nobody's teaching that. So in my wise coaching, I said, don't pray. And I must have said it a lot because at the end of the camp, you know, the coach gets a, a little reward from their players often. And in front of the whole camp, they gave me a set of praying hands. And on the back, they wrote, don't pray. Thanks for helping us. The only problem is they didn't stop praying those five days. That's nice to know you also didn't get struck by lightning, too. <laughs> I think the gym did. <laughs> I, was just I was indoors, safe. And so I now wish I had those kids back because we started to come up with positive images. And so Dave <laughs> Richard says, all right, tie a string around your wrist and it goes to your belly button. And if you pray, you rip out your belly button and blood goes everywhere. Oh, God, it's a mess. And so, <laughs> this is what's called pattern interruption. It's another form of great teaching where you do 
really interesting images or funny things. And so he said, keep your belly button. Stop being don't rip out your belly button. He would then say, keep your belly button. And then it got all the way down in camp to just saying belly button. Because when your wrists are by your belly button, you're not praying. And good pastors keep their hands at belly button height. Boom, there it is. That for me has always been a, you know, a kind of a, a fun one. I don't know. And hitting, for me, it's open the door as you get ready to hit with shoulder rotation and torque. And then you don't close the door, you slam the door. And, you know, that's that's making my body feel like a door. And then I slam the door as I swing to spike a ball a little bit harder. So I think there's a, a good example. In blocking, you know, blocking is, you'll hear the term Mickey Mouse ears and stuff. I don't know if I have a whole lot. I, I never blocked anybody on a box or teach kids hitting off of boxes ever because to be a great blocker, you've got to read the hitter's approach and read the set and do all this other stuff that happens way before the ball gets contacted. And the more you do it against any hitter, the more longer you get to see the hitter approach, the better blocker you're going to be. But I do know that the rules now say stay out of the net. And so I will first start saying, here's the four most important rules for blocking. I want you to think about it. What do you think the number one rule is for us? I, I just think it's important. And so the whole time I'm talking, I'm hanging in the net. I'm leaning in it lightly. And then I say, okay, what do you think the most important rule is? And they come up with this and that and duh, watch the hitter. I go, no, most important rule. And then I finally start almost pulling the net down. And then one bright kid will go, oh, stay out of the net. Yeah. Because if you touch the net, I don't care how good of a blocker you are or just did, it's never going to be good. So you got to learn to kinesthetically stay out of the net. And that changes as you get tired and, you know, the longer into the match, it's harder to not touch the net because you're jumping a little bit less and variations on a theme. And, but that kind of play acting is, again, part of uh, the art of coaching, you know, the fun part of coaching and, and doing something crazy. I'm thinking of uh, digging. Boy, for me, I don't really have much other than to say I want the ball to go up and off the net. And what YouTube has allowed us to bring is some amazing other sports and other things. I urge you to go type the word foot volley into YouTube and watch any clip that you're going to see within seconds of the game of foot volley where they other than the kicking the ball off the tee as they play doubles on basically the same size court they receive with their chest they kick it with their foot they spike it with their head they do everything else that is completely legal by the rules of volleyball but nobody ever teaches any of it so my club as you know my kids when i coach them as part of the fun they get to watch that foot volley video and then they go play a warm-up game of short court two-on-two. Two, and they have to do all those things that they saw in the video. They can't touch it with their hands. Letting them experience that, then all of a sudden in a match, the player will, the creative player, having given this new idea, will all of a sudden do it. And then they go nuts because they're not soccer players. But they didn't realize that you could chest it and you could chicken wing it and you can kick it off the top of your knee and you can hit it over with your head and and those are fun things to do that are part of each skill i think i hate injuries so since this is a form i can put a couple thoughts out on this injury prevention that i find so important with young kids their judgment isn't as good and so i always teach every practice for even the 18s, but with the youngest kids, I may spend the entire season hitting from the back row. It's been well over a decade since I've had a knee or an ankle injury because my kids first learn to jump and leap and fly through the air and get to bad sets and get to good sets from the three meter line. You don't have any ankle sprains at the net by flying underneath the net when you hit from the three meter line and learn what your body's doing. 
as they get better, we move the ball closer. But I always train well off the net, including in beach doubles, so that they have the ability as the shorter and younger players as well. But again, at the 18s, for the first five to eight minutes, we're going to hit back row before as we get closer and closer to the net. In my gym, I will blow the whistle twice, about twice a practice. And that is an indication that the athletes are to now hit with their non-dominant hand. I find it fascinating because I work with so many other sports at the USOC that in tennis, they have a forehand and a backhand. And in hockey, they can shoot backhand and forehand. And in basketball, you would never say just dribble with your right hand and shoot with your right hand. You'd be laughed out of coaching. You know, no, you have to be able to do both. And the great players can do both. And in lacrosse, which I coach, you got to be able to shoot right and left. Because if you can only shoot right, the defender's going to just eat you up. You got to be able to switch right back to left. I mean. And in soccer, could you imagine having a coach that said, I only want you to dribble and shoot with your right foot? But we come into volleyball, and other than Rosie, I don't know many people that are ambidextrous hitters. And I'm not asking us to create ambidextrous players, but I don't know why we couldn't, per se. What I'm asking is to have a safety factor, because to everyone listening, if you jump in the right place as an outside hitter in zone four, as a right-hander, and the ball's perfectly... You land on two legs, everything's hunky-dory. If the ball's set a little bit to your right inside the court, you jump and then, oh, it's all inside. And so you just kind of reach out with your right hand, tip it, and you probably land safely again. When you jump by the, you know, on the court, and then you realize as you take off, oh, damn, the ball's shooting past the antenna. Tell me what those athletes look like when they go to hit that ball. And in my experience, every athlete can show you, they lean way over their left shoulder, they reach out with their right hand, and they attempt to save the ball and cut it in some radical way inside the antenna to save match point. And then how do they land? One foot. Not only one foot, but their whole upper body is where? Way off to the left. When most athletes land one-footed, they're landing kind of in, in line with force. If you look at good hitters, Karch included, you know, that landed one leg, I don't know how many times. When they do, they're not landing in a shearing way at the knee. They're landing above the line of force as their leg is going out to catch their balance. It's this ball that's set past the antenna that the player who only knows how to use their right hand reaches way over with their right hand, saves it, and then comes down contorted above their left leg and way more than half of the knee injuries in junior volleyball are to the non-dominant knee. And I think, you know, I haven't done a study other than to know what the knee injury rate is and the knee injuries to the left versus the right, or I'm sorry, I should say the non-dominant, because if you're a lefty, you have a right leg injury more often than not. So those are two areas of one-leggedness, I guess, (laughs) that I find This last one that I'm talking about, that's the one that scares me the most. The other ones that when you watch Penn State and Nebraska and all these guys play, if you go back and do your on-demand or go on YouTube, you'll see these athletes landing more than half the time on one leg as part, but they're landing in line with their body landing. I'm always impressed by the variety of things that you know about. (laughs) I feel like you're an expert on like 20 different things. It's awesome just to listen and hear you talk and your blog post. It's Grow the Game. Grow the Game Together, Grow the Game blog. Yeah. Um, it's If you go to the USA website, there's a grassroots button. And then you click on that and you'll see Grow the Game Together blog or Grow the Game blog. We'll link to it in our, in our show notes. Yeah, super. That'd be great. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask, I know you're a, a big reader and I've seen, I think one of your articles, you listed a bunch of books that you recommend. Mm-hmm. If you could just leave, leave us with a couple of books, maybe that you've read more recently that we should read. Well, beyond the one that we're talking about attention and motor skill learning by Dr. Gabriel Wolf. Uh, she's a professor at UNLV. I think it's, yeah, she's at UNLV. I think the book that I'm rereading because I like what the Aussies are doing is called Developing Sport Expertise by Damien Farrow, F-A-R-R-O-W. 
sadly, Dr. Richard Schmidt passed away and his book, Motor Learning and Performance from Principles to Practice, edition five, ain't cheap. It's over a hundred bucks as a textbook, but that's sort of the book Bible that is the best. The other two that I think are really valuable to this, how do I give good feedback? Because they have whole chapters on it are Damien Farrow's book about developing sport expertise and then attention and motor learning. You know, I haven't really mentioned this tied into the book and Dr. Schmidt, but the reason I think we've won so many men's gold medals and just won our first on the women's side is because the men's side, even with a hundred to one ratio and scholarship difference, the men have been following motor learning science from the get-go, thanks to Dr. Carl McGowan, who uh, really we owe a lot of thanks to at, at the volleyball level for USA Volleyball. On the uh, women's side, it's really been embraced much strongly, starting with Hugh McCutcheon and now Karch is sort of standing on his shoulders, and they won their first gold medal. And, you know, John Cook, the, the coach in Nebraska, had the gold medal squared slash Chris McGowan, uh, Carl's son, come in and work as a consultant with him this year, and Nebraska won. And the impact manual has an entire section on motor learning performance. And up on the website in the free webinars, I did a webinar with Carl probably three years ago. This is the kind of thing that a lot of coaches like to learn and, and hear from, because Carl's the best, for sure. Way better. Yeah, listen to that one. That's a good one. Yeah. I recommend checking that one out. Yeah. And we actually have uh, an author coming on our show in about a couple of weeks. He wrote uh, Legacy. It's a book about the All Blacks. Oh, you got so, him coming on. Oh, yeah, James Kerr. Yeah. So, yeah, we're looking forward to chatting with him. The only other thing I'm going to plug is uh, trainugly.com. I think Trevor's doing some really good stuff trying to break down some not just volleyball walls, but all sport walls and his interviews with many of the movers and shakers on the motor skill and, and growth mindset side. He's doing some good things there too, like you guys are. So I appreciate the chance to talk with you guys for sure. Thanks, John. We, we learned a lot. It's always amazing how important it is to choose the words carefully we use when giving feedback mm -hmm. and not just repeating what we hear other coaches saying. And I look forward to uh, following you and learning even better ways how to give feedback. Two-way street. I'll be right. checking your other podcasts out. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. We wanted to let you know that our interview with James Kerr is this Saturday, if you're a subscriber and getting the show the day it comes out. We'll be talking to him live on blab.im if you want to join in. After our chat, we will open it up to questions from you guys. So you can write questions into the chat box or click to come on the show and ask yourself. We're scheduled for 11 a.m. Pacific time. We'll post a link to the show on Twitter, at Coach Your Brain. Come join our book club. You have about two days to finish Legacy, so read your brains out.